Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Gulsum Goha, I am so delighted to invite you into my Therapy Works podcast and discover your story. The first lawyer in your area ever to go to university, to have a professional job. You got the high score in your province. So you overcame a lot of barriers and challenges before the Taliban overtook Afghanistan. But if you're thinking about what is the challenge you're facing or have had to overcome, what is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome? Uh, yeah, as you said, I was the first lawyer in my region. I, when I started working as a lawyer, there was not any female lawyer in the office. And at the first time working in a, a male-dominant uh, organization, it was really challenging. Before that, when I wanted to go to university, I was the first girls that was able to go to university. Uh, and it was quite challenging because in a conservative society, uh, families usually were not allowing um, their girls to go to university and study. So I convinced my parents and traveled to another city, which was really uh, challenging because that was the first time that I was uh, living alone without my family. So those challenges passed through and then, yeah, now, now I'm facing another challenge. Before we talk about the next challenge, which is probably the greatest challenge, help me understand what enabled you, you know, you came from a, a very poor family. Your father was a, was a farmer, there's five children. You're in a society where girls don't get educated, certainly don't go to university and become lawyers. What do you think it is about you that drove you to be so different, to step out of the kind of conditioning and to fight to be educated and a professional lawyer? Uh, since I was at school, I was like about 11 or 12 years old. I decided to become a lawyer and defend women's rights. I don't know what drew me to study law, but some kind of a natural desire in my heart that I wanted to become a lawyer. I always was like thinking about to helping women because women was always counted as a second, uh, second sex. So. Uh, usually uh, when I was like sitting at home, my mother always was sitting at the close to the door and my father and other um, males in, in my family was laying on the cushion. 
So it was something that I was questioning myself, why there is so gender inequality. So despite uh, my mother was raising children, cooking food, cleaning, and uh, did the majority of uh, uh, management work in the family, but in terms of getting decision, this sort of thing always went back to my father. And in the society that I was living, usually girls cannot decide who they, they want to marry and their fathers and mothers decided who they should marry, but the boys had the choice. So this sort of issues was in my mind. I was asking questions myself, why, why these all things are happening? And I wanted to become a lawyer and to like question these challenges, why these are in our society. We need uh, changes our society. We need women be financially independent. We need a woman to decide about uh, their future, their selves. I can really hear how witnessing the inequality of your mum doing all the domestic work, but sitting on the floor and your father gets to sit on the cushion and women not having the choice of who they marry or what they do. Were there things that you read or watched that in, it gave you the courage or a person that inspired you? Uh, no, there was not any uh, anybody to inspire me or tell this sort of thing to me because I grew in a, uh, in a rural village that, that there was not any educated people. So my grandpa was uh, had religious education. He was just telling to people about God, about hell, heaven, this sort of thing. But nobody was like thinking about society challenges. So, so no, no, there was not at all anybody to tell this sort of thing to me. By myself, I was when I going to bed, I was thinking how victims are in our society, women. For example, I was thinking about myself when I'm in my father's home. I need to help my mother with cooking, cleaning, washing clothes, washing dishes. And when I get teenager, I need to like be quiet to, to consider as a good girl. Uh, Not speak. Yeah. And my father should uh, decide who I want to marry. And I have not any... Uh, any room or anything belongs to me in my father's house. When I got married and go to my husband's house, my husband said, okay, this is my house. I can choose what you should do. And this sort of thing, it was like really shocking for me. I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? So you became qualified and you worked for five years as a professional lawyer in the field of violence against women and child abuse. So I imagine when the Taliban came in 2021, that was devastating. I mean, tell me about this next challenge. Uh, it was, yeah, when the Taliban took over. So that time I was kind of my ambition destroyed everything because before that I I was working as a prosecutor of violence against women and children abuses so I had the authority to help those uh, victim women to seek justice and I put many of those people who committed crimes against women I put them in jail gosh so satisfying yeah, it was kind of satisfying and I was happy that uh, uh, now I can't do something for women. And I never was like thinking one day the governments will collapse and I should flee the country. I never imagined this situation. So everything, I think, changed in a, in a week. So Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievably, Taliban was like, taking control of every provinces every day was like um, uh, 
military person was giving up from fighting against the Taliban. So it was like in a, in a week, I, I, I was working in an office and every day I, we, I was hearing gunshot, rifle shot, missile sound around the city. So I was like thinking, oh my God, what's going on? And then... Terrifying. Yeah, a week before the, the city collapsed, the Taliban and my husband said, you need to move to Kabul because if the Taliban took over the city, the, the first people they are looking for is prosecutor and judge because you investigated their cases and they, they want to, uh, they, they will look for you and they will maybe torture you, maybe murder you and it is really horrible and dangerous for you. And I left the city, Saripul city, which is in north of Afghanistan and went to Kabul. And it was after a week that Kabul as well collapsed by the Taliban. And it was a tragic moment. And we rushed toward to the uh, Kabul airport to flee the country. And hopefully my husband had some contacts in UK and his teachers. So... Yeah, they sent us an email that you can come to the Kabul airport and we will evacuate you. But when we both get to the Kabul airport, it was much uh, worse than we saw on the social media news. I mean, children, women, men were, were like rushing and Taliban was shooting to people. The weather was like really, it was summer. It was like about 40 degrees and there was not enough food, water. So we never could get to the airport because everybody was rushing and pushing each other. And Can I pause a moment just to kind of take in the enormity of what you're saying? I mean, I remember seeing the images and yet yeah. hearing you describe it as you were there, the the terror and the chaos yeah. and the murder exactly. and the survival in the sense that you were all Afghanistanis, but you all had to kind of fight each other in order to kind of hope to yeah. survive. And I imagine, I mean, what, what was that like in your body? What was the feeling? Was it like panic? Were you screaming or did you go cold? And you were with your husband. Is your husband a lawyer? And uh, no, he's not. He he's a military. <laughs> so the kind of feeling in my side was feeling of scare, frightening, and when uh, when Taliban was shooting, I was like shaking. Uh, so if if a bullet hit be hitting to us because they were like shooting everywhere. Gosh. My husband was walking around to see how to navigate if he could find a way to get in the airport. And I was sitting against a wall. So it was, I, I, I can't find enough words to, to explain that situation. It was really much, much horrible. I was kind of lost my hope because we could not get into the airport. And then suddenly my husband was running toward me and he was saying, get up, get up. I, I find a, a way to get there. He said, one of my classmates are operating the evacuation. So he is in the Kabul airport. So he will help us. I, it was kind of a relief for me and kind of a really emotional moment because there was a hope. And then we tried to... Uh, get close to the gate and then he called people from inside the airport and they called to the people on the gate so they they kind of let us to get to the airport and it when they opened the door and he, he pulled us toward him and he hugged my husband hugged me and we all was like about to cry but we control ourselves it was 
it was a really relief moment and I felt that now my life is safe because they will evacuate me in a safe place and I'm not anymore in danger of being killed by a gunshot by the Taliban. So Gulsum, I mean, that sounds a extraordinary moment, you know, the terror, the pushing and shoving, the despair, and then that moment you saw the man, the gate opened, you were through the gate, leaving the sort of screaming behind you and knowing that you were going to survive. Yeah. And I could see you smiling as you were speaking. It's like, I'm going to live. So in that moment, having death seemed so close and it would have been, you. there's no question you'd have been killed, maybe tortured, as you said. Yeah. You were going to be evacuated. I, I, I feel so kind of full. Yeah. I don't know what the feelings are, the relief. Yeah. But also terrible what you left behind, the people. Exactly. It was a moment of two contrasts. I had two contrast feeling. On one yeah. hand, I was thinking that now, yeah, now I'm safe. So on the other hand, I was like thinking about all those poor children, young women, was trying to escape Afghanistan and they, they were behind those big locked gate. And all those, I was thinking about all my achievement that I was studying, I had an office, I, uh, I was helping women and all those kind of achievement was gone in a day. I, I was thinking that I will leave my home country, my father, my siblings, my mother, my friends, my colleague my good memories, everything. I, I, I was lifting everything literally behind with no clothes, no suitcase. So it was completely a contrast feeling. And I, when I get to the plan, passing all the checkpoints and checking documents by the British um, people, they were operating the evacuation. After passing all the, the, the checkings. So when I get to the uh, to the military airplane, it was 10 30 p.m. and it was dark and I can't see the city uh, lights were on. So I literally cried and I was mm. like saying goodbye to everything and going to uh, to a country that I, I never had planned to move there. I never know, know what gonna happen to me. And it was a completely uncertain future. That's really, really, really sad moment. circumstances completely beyond your control, nothing to do with you, propelled you to be in this impossible position where in order to survive, in order to stay alive, you had to leave everything, your mother, your father, your siblings, your memories, your friends, your achievements, your career, the landscape, your home, the place yeah. where you belong, yeah. going to a place where you didn't know, that you didn't know the language, you had no connections, yeah. you had no nothing. I mean, the terror of that, and yet the impossibility of doing anything else. It's impossible to kind of imagine the impact of that psychologically. I think there was a bomb, wasn't it, just outside the airport. Talk to me about those next minutes and days. Uh, yeah, when I get to the airport, so it was like, uh, it was about 10.30 a.m. So I had not slept for past two days and two nights. I was, because we, we, we me and my husband, we've been like emailing to people, searching following news, what's going to happen. So I had not 
sleep at all. So when I get to the airport, it was 10.30 a.m. And I had not food as well for the past 24 hours. And then military people gave us some food. There was queue and they were checking our documents. So when I, I cannot like stand anymore to the queue, I was so exhausted and I literally sit on the floor and I, I said to my husband, I can't stand anymore. So, yeah, those all things passed and it was like around 6 p.m. that that the military people said, you are, we're going to move you to, close to the military plant. And then we've been waiting to to get to the airplane. So then warning alarm turned on and the military people was like saying there was a big hole. So they were saying, get into the hole, move, 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 because um, a suicide bomb attack happened outside the airport and they made attack inside and they make him enter to the uh, airport and i was shocking if in fair and i i went to the hall there there was two hole so and then i suddenly i saw there is not my husband oh my god i i i thought i lost him there was like a bunch of people and we 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 were squeezing to each other and you cannot move and the weather was also so warm and I saw an old lady like really hardly uh, breathing because there was not enough oxygen to breathe and I thought oh my god she gonna die soon and it is really horrible to see somebody dying in front of you and myself I was like feeling that there is not enough oxygen. I was hardly breathing. My goodness. Yeah. I cannot imagine. It's like suffocating. It, it just is. sounds the worst experience. Yeah. And that moment, there was not good phone signals. And we, my, my parents' son used that, that a bomb suicide attack happened in the airport and they was they were really nervous what going to happen to them. They might be killed. So they were calling us, calling us. Our phone was off, and they they thinking about really what scenario, dead. yeah. So and then we stayed about I don't know four hour, three hour, about something like that. Stayed to the safe room, and then it was ten thirty that they said now the situation is getting better. We need to get out from this hole and need to go to the plants. So, and then I find my husband as well there. So we went to the plants. It was about midnight and suddenly my phone was ringing and I uh, respond to the phone and it was my mom and she was, oh my God, my heart was stopping. What are you doing while your no. phone is off? And I experienced situation, yeah, this all tragedy moment, yeah. A real tragic moment. Yeah. That you could have died, that people did die. Many people died. Hundreds yeah. of people died. Hundreds, probably. yeah. I'm so sorry, Gulsum. It's such a horrific, horrific story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether to ask whether you have flashbacks to those moments now or to get you into England and to learn about the challenge of being in England. I mean, maybe you can answer both. Do you have flashbacks of that 24 hours at the airport? Yes, I do have. Since I came here, especially those 23 days that I've been in a quarantine hotel and I cannot go outside, I was like every single moment thinking about those hard, horrible things that happened in the airport. And I was crying 
So to fill in the gap, you you flew to England and we'll have to kind of fast forward a bit because we don't have a huge amount of time. But you were put in a quarantine hotel. Yeah. And you couldn't leave the room. So for those 23 days, you were having a revolving kind of awful yeah, movie exactly. in your head of the of the terror that you'd been through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I also was when I was watching videos on social media, it was like repeating the moment, repeating again to me. And it was it was like that I'm again on that situation. And every single night when I was sleeping, I, I was dreaming those situation and dreaming that Taliban are, are chasing me, they are searching for me, they are shooting the people. It was really hard to fall asleep. And when I fall asleep, I was dreaming those yes. horrible things. It was really... I mean, that's proper trauma. So you really is, went through a yeah. proper traumatic experience. And that's a trauma experience that that haunts you when you're asleep and haunts you when you're awake, a kind of devastating heightened state of of terror, really, that was going through you all the time. Yeah. And now here you are, speaking English. You've started a job in a law firm. Yeah. So what has enabled you from that devastating horror that you left the awful time when you were in the hotel when you, for those 23 days, re, kind of being re-traumatized by the flashbacks and then not speaking English, not knowing anybody. What has helped you to be now speaking English, having a job? What has enabled you to be functioning in our society so quickly, really, from such a, a broken place? Actually, what helped me to stand again after being hurt, after being fall down, I thought I will not lose my hope because I want begin again a powerful lady to help those young girls that they, they banned from going to school, going to university. I thought if I sit at the home every day and grieve and uh, reviewing those bad memory again, nothing will change. I said, okay, Golson, these all, all horrible things happen to you, but you, you need to stand again and fight again as you fought for women rights for five years and you need to continue that that way. So, and then after three months, it was in a temporary accommodation in a hotel. I cannot speak English at all. It was really hard that you cannot uh, communicate with people. And I tried to find the English course, despite I didn't know the area. I was asking from people, do you know any course around, something like that. And I was like giving the direction. I Many times I went to find the course, but I lost because I was not good at Google map, uh, map reading, this sort of stuff. Uh, finally, I managed to find the uh, English course for adult and I enrolled myself there and learned the language and I tried to um, uh, make networking and find people who are working in law area. And I heard about an event was held for a family, an Afghan family judges and lawyers from a lady who came to our hotel to help children. And she said, I have got a friend. She's a lawyer. There is an event. I said, that's nice. Can you invite me to that event? I could meet some lawyer people. And then she invited me that event. And in that event, I spoke to the people with my broken <laughs> English. So, and then when I narrated my story, uh, there was a lady, she said, okay, I'm uh, working in a law firm. I am a partner, so I could offer for you a three months a job opportunity that you kind of be familiar with UK law. 
And then, yeah, that was the moment that it was a hope moment and everything was getting better. And then, yeah, I, uh, she gave her email address and her contact details and I emailed to her my CV and then she offered me a three months uh, fixed contract as a paralegal. And then I worked three months. It was quite challenging because the, uh, um, the, the, here everything is completely different. But in Afghanistan, we had lots of paper writing, filing. Here is everything on technology as you know, it's modern and completely different. And then when my contract finished, I passed an interview and the interview was successful. Now I have got a permanent contract, which is really nice. And I can see you smiling, Gulsum. Yeah. You look lit up. Unbelievable. It is, yeah. So there's something in you that it sounds like there's some kind of innate determination, like I am not going to be a victim. I am going to fight. Yeah. I am going to be the person I want to be and do the things I believe in. There's some kind of courage and determination that you have that you don't need much to spark it to get going again. It's almost like you have a thought and once you have the thought, you push through what have you learned from this, from other people who are facing their challenges, which may be different to yours, but somehow don't have that innate sense of determination of, I'm going to fight this. What do you think you could say to them that would help them? Uh, I would give one advice for them, that never, never give up for your dreams. There is always opportunities in front of you. If you try your best, you will achieve your goals, use those opportunities. Uh, Yeah, it's right that life never been easy. There is many challenges in front of every one of us. So as I faced many, many challenges since I was a child, to this moment, but kind of I passed those all challenges. And always when there is a dark moment after a, a, a dull, gray, rainy day, there will be a, a nice and sunny sunshine always and never give up for your dreams. So it is that belief, isn't it, that the dawn is just before the dark in the darkest time in your life. It is. You have to have hope to believe that there is something to hope for. There is a small light that you can aim for. And if you aim for it, it then does kind of light up and you can make it you can make it yours. Yeah. I was wondering your husband, has he found a job? Have you both kind of rebuilt your lives here? Not actually. He could not manage to find a job. He's a really good Afghan husband, actually. Many of other Afghan has, husbands don't like that, do not like that their women should work in office, be in an area that are working with men, because they, they think this is, uh, this is not an Afghan way. <laughs> he's different, he's open-minded. I'm lucky that he's my husband. Although he helped quite lots me to find this job to to uh, to learn language, but he he could not manage to find the job for herself yet. I don't know why. Sometimes life is a chance. I mean, sometimes you need to be lucky enough to 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 get a mm. job or something what you want. When he came here because he studied in the UK, he he spoke English very well. I'm praying to him to to find his dream job soon. Yeah, I mean, it is luck too. It's like that networking event was the thing that changed it for you. Yeah. And we kind of hope that there's something that will change it for him. And how is your family in Afghanistan? How are your siblings and your parents under the Taliban? Can you call and email? 
Uh, Sometimes I call them, I speak to them through WhatsApp, but there is not good internet connection because they're living in a rural area. So usually I speak to my mom, to my siblings, twice a month, sometime after three weeks. It's depend that when they could find a good internet connection. And also the internet is really, really expensive there. So they are, they are fine, but my mom so badly missed me. And I'm so sad for my two sisters, one of them been to university, one of been to secondary school. She's just 12 years old, but they cannot go to school and university. I'm so sad for them and worried for their future because they will be uneducated women. Uneducated. Yeah, yeah. because when you're uneducated, men will order to you what you should do. But if you're an educated woman, you will never uh, let a man to to give you the orders that you should be, yeah, well, their slave. Yeah, so they'll be slaves in some way. They'll have to submit to the men's power. Yeah, I'm so worried about their future. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. It is really a tragic situation when I'm thinking those thousands of girls that they've been in universities, in schools, they were like me following their dreams and now they stopped. There is no way to for them to fight and it is shocking. I can imagine that all of them, they, they are in trauma at the moment. Not a maid. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Gulsum, as a final sign-off, what is your next hope and dream or challenge you have to overcome that you sort of see coming in the future for you? Uh, my next challenge is that I am trying to become a qualified so- uh, solicitor here. Uh, as you know, becoming a solicitor is quite competitive and you need to uh, have a really good communication skills, verbal skills, good writing skills to become a solicitor and pass the solicitor exams. I'm preparing myself for that in in terms of my career goals, in terms of being a woman activist rights. My next challenge is to to find a way to help those women in Afghanistan to start learning, to, to establish a charity organization, to teach them online, start online classes for those girls, sign some kind of, I want to find a way to, to help them. Then. Yeah, in this really hardship moment. Well, Gulsum, I mean, I have no doubt from the challenges that you've already overcome and fought through with such courage and determination that you will become a qualified solicitor. And I'm sure you will make a difference to women in Afghanistan trying to reach them to educate them. Um, But I really can't thank you enough for being on this podcast. I think all of us are inspired by your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. It was like listening to a kind of um, drama, wasn't it? It was extraordinary listening to her. Sophie, do you want to start? I think, as you say, Mum, it was like the scale of what she had been through is so monumental. And for people who've had obviously different but similar levels of trauma and loss and violence and chaos in their lives, you're often, in, in the context of something like her experience, you're hit by the greatest trauma of your life where you're also 
at the same moment robbed of all the things that we normally would advise or say is what you need to be able to cope with such experiences. You lose your home, you lose your family, you lose being able to communicate properly, you lose financial security, you know, everything that normally would be some of the things that you would hope would be um, kind of the stability factors in someone's life that support them are also ripped away as part of the traumatic experience. So I suppose one of the feelings <laughs> was just a like um, sense of, um, sort of almost stunned of how does one rebuild oneself from that process? And uh, you asked her the question at some point, you know, how did you build yourself back? And she has a job now and it's learned English. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me Incredible. was about that actually she had a series of difficult experiences from a young age that she overcame. And I think one of the things that can be helpful uh, in our narratives about ourselves is the, is feeling like you are a resilient person. I have done this before and I have survived. I have been in hard places and I have picked myself back up. And I think often with our children, we really want to protect them from difficult experiences because that's the instinctual thing to want to do. And yet there's really big value, isn't there, in supporting our children through difficult experiences in such a way that give them confidence that life doesn't have to be smooth for us to survive and to build back up, even if we go to very, very dark places. I mean, I think there's definitely research on that in terms of resilience mm. in children, in terms of allowing them to experience some hardship, nothing like wholesome experienced, yeah. but like things with friends that are hard. It's a spectrum. Seems like wholesome is experiences were on very, very much the extreme end of the spectrum. And it struck me that towards the end, she said, I am a powerful lady. Mm. And there was such power in that statement around how, like you said, so how she had kind of got a narrative for herself around herself that allowed her to continue. And I also was thinking about how her experiences were so beyond my capacity to imagine what her experiences are. Like the way she described it, is, like you said, mum, it's like a, a film. And someone actually asked me the other day if I thought that it was possible for me as a therapist to be able to help somebody when I hadn't experienced what they had experienced. And I wondered what you two would say to that someone sort of said like how could you possibly help this person because their experience is so beyond your imagination i've had many clients who whose experiences are, are what i would most not want to happen to me in the world and gulson is certainly one of them and i think the big mistake is to sort of say i know what you're feeling but what i can offer and i hope i offered in that session if it's a session was the curiosity to find out how she saw it for herself and empathy for the extent of the trauma um, and help her have a narrative that she could begin to understand for herself. One of the things that also struck me, you know, you said, Em, about her saying, I'm a powerful woman. And I was thinking about that refugee experience of, in her case, and of many refugees experiences of having been a very powerful, capable, educated member of your society. And then suddenly you're this sort of um, vulnerable and you're perceived and misperceived uh, so many ways once you're in another country where you don't speak the language and your qualifications don't apply. Yeah. And, and disregarded and disempowered at every level. And actually, and after listening to that, you actually went and watched the short film that she is in it's called my refugee life um and it's part of a charity called breaking barriers and she's one of five refugees who talk about their stories um and breaking barriers is a charity that helps refugees find employment in a meaningful long-term employment and if it's if you listen to this and what's sort of interested in in that journey or you yourself it also has lots of resources are a refugee um, or know someone who is i would really recommend watching the film, I think it gives a good insight into the kind of identity loss as well that comes along with becoming a, a refugee. 
Um, like it's who you are rather than what you've been through. It's an, an identity that nobody wants uh, or would choose. The other thing I was wondering about having worked with other refugees was genetics in that it seemed to me that, I mean, she was born into a loving family, but with all the disadvantages of poverty, of being a girl, of not being expected to be educated, to be like her mum, and there was something in her, a spark in her, a determination in her, and a kind of fire in her that somehow I kind of feel she was born with, whether it came from the generations before. But that felt to me as a genetic predisposition that she then kind of lived. Well, I had so many questions because there was yes. so much that just, you, you know, like how did she get from the village and being given a husband to being a lawyer. Like, what were the conversations she had to have? Yes. Like, ha like, where did her fearlessness come from? I could have done a whole series on her, couldn't we? I know. <laughs> it's so hard to know. I remember you talking, Mum, when you were writing your book about one of the women in your book who was a Holocaust Bur survivor. The Berger family. Yeah. The Berger family. Catty. And how... Yeah. Kathy, even when she was in her 90s or however old she was, still had this spark and your sort of sense that maybe that was what also helped her survive, that it got her a bit more food, it got her those sort of basic sort of survival things. And it's something that I feel quite complicated about because on the one hand, I can really see that there's a sort of magnetism, a strength that maybe some people are just born with. And yet on the other side, it then sort of feels like people who don't have that, I don't know, it sort of puts the onus on your sort of own personality instead of thinking about like this, these, these are really shitty events that happened. I don't know. So I feel like it's quite complicated. Mm. Also, there's such an interaction, isn't there, on so many levels of who you are and the system you're in and luck or bad luck. Um, and then what comes out at the end is is, is a mystery, isn't it, really? And I think how complicated for her or for people who've been in situations who end up getting refugee status, she talked about and you talked about the gates and the people left behind the gates, and to feel simultaneously oh. both a lucky one. And this can be for lots of people who survive traumas that other people don't survive sure, or yeah. recover in a, to an extent that other people don't recover, of both feeling like you should feel lucky but also possibly feeling so unlucky and so devastated, but finding it hard to legitimize your feelings because somehow you got the better ticket or things went better for you or you were married to the right person or you had the money. And that can be a really added factor of complexity, can't it? Of seeking help, of legitimizing your own pain when you're such a comparison point. Were there things that you wished I'd asked? Yeah, loads. I was really curious about her earlier yes, journey. I didn't go into of, that. How she got from her family of origin to her husband to being a lawyer. Mm. What, like, how did that mm. happen? Like, how did that journey happen? There must have been so many battles she had to fight on mm. the way to that. Or maybe there weren't battles. Yes. I don't know, because you didn't ask. But you only had time. You know, you were talking about the challenge in her life now. Yeah, I had the sort of, and, and that's the difference in therapy, isn't it, from the podcast, is that I did have a, a goal, which is I wanted to get the story from her being in Afghanistan during that terrible time to London. I was also curious about the cultural dissonance of being in a country that has such different values that maybe align more to her beliefs. But also I thought about, I mean, that this is sort of for her, but also generally for people who move countries where there's quite different cultural values and what it was like that she has a job and her husband doesn't have a job and how that might affect the shift of dynamics in relationships and I was thinking about my own relationships and how there is a power imbalance when one of you works and one of you doesn't and that definitely has affected my relationship as those things have shifted backwards and forwards over the years and I, so I think I was just curious about that for her and her relationship. I think it, it, we might ask her for a part two and do 
both the roots and see where she came from with less goal direction, more like proper therapy, but also find out where she is. Always with podcasts like these, with stories, one of my first reactions, and it's why I think stories could be helpful, isn't it? Is you imagine yourself in the, like, what would I do if, or what would it be like for me? We reflect on ourselves, essentially, don't we? And that's, I guess, even mm. when the story is as wildly different to my own experience, it's still like a fascinating process, isn't it? But then asking yourself, like, for me, for example, I think one of the questions it probably brings up is that, which I definitely can struggle with in my life, is senses of agency. You know, like, what can I actually make happen for myself? What do I have the power to change? And what powers do I have to accept? And how, how I can undermine my own ability. It's like, actually, I can do that. I'm just scared. And I think reflecting on her story, even though it's so different to mine, questions like that can still emerge, can't they? Thank you, Sophie and Emily, and particularly thank you to Gulson for a really inspiring and fascinating conversation and so much to kind of unpick. Do please share this podcast with people you think might enjoy it. Please rate and subscribe because it helps others find it. And also you can subscribe to our new newsletter. So thanks very much until the next time. Let me tell you about a podcast I love, and honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week, she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr. Julie Smith, and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.